This morning's reading is Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advanced against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek my face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So, point of clarification. Psalm 27 is not part of the Psalms of Ascent. I don't want you saying that was part of the series. Psalm 120 to 134 are the official Psalms of Ascent. Um, But I wanted to close the series. We spent 16 weeks looking at those songs that were sung by the Israelites as they made their way up to Jerusalem three times a year for the three annual feasts. Um, And I wanted to close the series with Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is one of my favorite psalms. Some of you know it. Some of you have it memorized in total, which is good. It's a good one to have memorized. Um, But a question that was asked by more than one of you, and it's a good question during this series... One particular individual said, how, how can singing songs bring security? How can singing songs make me courageous and filled with hope? It's a good question, right? Especially in light of our culture and how we think. How would, how would merely singing to God make me strong like David's? Because some of the songs, the Psalms of Ascent, were written by David. And Psalm 27 gives us the answer. Actually, Psalm 27 verse 4 gives us the answer. For those of you who heard the reading and freaked out saying this is going to be a three-hour sermon, relax. We're going to focus mostly on verse 4 with some other ones surrounding it. Psalm 27, verse 4, David said, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. I mean, when they're singing these songs, they're going up to Jerusalem. They're going to the temple. They want to see God. They want to hear God. They want to experience Yahweh, right? And so David comes along and says, the one thing I want in all my life, for all of my life, for the rest of my life, is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. 
And so the singing of the songs is not just singing. Like you turn on the radio and you're listening to some really bad contemporary music and you sing along, but you don't even hear the words you're saying. Singing these songs is a meditation. And the meditation is to point us to, direct us to the beauty of God, who he is, that we might gaze upon him. Because if we, if we gaze upon the beauty of God, if we see him, and we know that we have that beauty, then you will be courageous. You'll be secure. It'll make you someone like David, gazing. And so this morning, I want to look at three things briefly. One, the promise that's made for the security in this psalm. And there's a promise that's made. And there's a promise that's not made, which we think is being said, but it's not actually being said. So we'll look at that too, if that made any sense to you. Two, how this promise can be realized. How we can actually have it and embrace it. And then three, why it actually can be realized. But first, let's look at the promise. Look at verse 1 again. The Lord is my light and my salvation, David says. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then will I be confident. Now we read this, and it sounds hyperbolic. David's talking about real life struggles he had. This is David's life. You know, he's giving a little autobiographical detail of his experiences. And the promise that we get here when you heard the 27th Psalm read, it sounds like it's a promise of security. That God's saying, I'm going to make sure that you are secure. I'm going to provide that for you. And it's in light of real difficult times. In fact, one of the things I love about the Psalms is they're so incredibly realistic, right? Because you have chaos, you have trouble, you have struggle, you have strife and anxiety and pain and suffering and thinking, that's my life, I get that. And that was David's life. I mean, David... From a very young time in his life, when we first get a glimpse, David was always in trouble, right? I mean, early on, he's running from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him, right? Before he actually, once Saul's gone, and before he actually gets the throne, someone else comes in, and he's on the run again. Toward the end of his life, as he was an older king, his own son, Absalom, came in and tried a coup, and he's on the run again. David's life was one of constant trouble and struggle and hardship. And so we see that, and we get that understanding here. And the Psalms, they're beautifully realistic in that they don't paint this fake picture of this real happy life. And if you read through the Psalms regularly and you pray through the Psalms, you can identify with all the Psalmists, including David, because you go, I struggle like that too. My enemies are coming against me. They're trying to kill me. They're trying to tear my flesh apart. I get this guy. That's why the Psalms resonate throughout human history. Because we, as fallen creatures in a fallen world, we go, I identify with that. That's my Monday and my Tuesday, and my Thursday and my Friday. Wednesday's a little bit better. Ernest Becker, Pulitzer Prize winning author, he said this, I think taking life seriously means that whatever you do must be done in the lived truth of the evil and terror of life, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. Otherwise, it's phony. You read the song. He must have loved the songs because that's what you get. That underneath everything is this, this trembling, this, this unsettledness. And yet at the same time, in the midst of all the trembling, we hear David saying, I'm courageous, I'm confident, I'm secure. Evil men who want to devour my flesh, an army wants to besiege me, war is breaking out against me, yet I'm confident in God. He is my stronghold. And so we get this, this dual nature of 
life, chaos, trouble, hardship, and security, courage, hope, and faith. Now, how does that work? I mean, what, what is the security that God's promising us here? Here's the major number one mistake that contemporary Christians, at least in America, make. We read this and we go, okay, I got the trick. This is how it works. I trust in God. He keeps me safe. I go to church. He gives me courage. Right? We read verse 2. When my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. I trust in God. He watches my back. He scatters my enemies. I don't have any troubles, right? I go through life okay. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Verse 5. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe. And what we say is this. If I believe in Jesus, if I trust in the Lord, if I read my Bible daily, if I pray periodically, if I give a little bit of money to the church that I don't want to give, but I'm going to give anyway, if I do all these things, then God will make sure that nothing really, really bad happens to me. I'll have some bad things, small bad things, speed bumps, right? The, 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 the things in life that are, are um, uncomfortable, but nothing major will happen to me if I trust in God. That's a misuse of this entire psalm. The New Testament misuse is Romans 8.28, which it's amazing how many Christians have that memorized, right? God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we say, oh, that's the best one. That's my life verse. That means if I believe in Jesus and I follow him, that nothing really bad's going to happen to me. Small things, not big things. He's going to make everything happen for good, Right? And, of course, that's our good according to our agenda, right? Not his good or his agenda. Our good. Poorly paraphrased, Romans 8.28 would be this. If I trust in God, all things will work together for good, and that means God will keep any real harm away from me. That's Keith's translation. You like that? My good, my agenda. So your good and your agenda go something like this. Lord, I trust in you. I don't mind getting sick, but I don't want to be crippled. I don't want to be in a wheelchair. I'm going to trust in you. You make sure that doesn't happen. Right? I don't mind being alone, but I don't want to be alone for my entire life. I want to be married by the time I'm 30. I want to have three children by the time I'm 35. I want to have a house or two by the time I'm 40. I don't want to be alone my whole life. I trust in you to make sure that doesn't happen. I'm at a job that I cannot stand. I have gifts and talents I want to use. If this is temporary, I'm okay with that. But according to my agenda and your goodness, I'm trusting in you and therefore you promise me that at one point in time, I will have a job that I can exercise my gifts and talents. I'm going to trust in you. Make sure that happens. And so we engage in this form of religious bargaining with God. I'll trust in you. You make sure nothing really bad happens to me. Okay, periodically, you know, I'll spill the milk and I'll, I'll get in a fender bender. But I don't want to get in a catastrophic car accident and be rendered immobile. Speed bumps only. Now, the, the 27th Psalm, Romans 8, doesn't teach any of this. In fact, if you look closely, look closely back at verse 5. It does not promise that if we trust in God, he will prevent any harm, any troubles, any real difficulties coming into our lives. In verse 5, safety is actually defined for us. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. Notice it does not say he will keep me safe from the day of trouble. 
It says, he will keep me safe in the day of trouble. Meaning it's come and I'm in the midst of it and things aren't good. But in the midst of all the chaos, he will keep me safe. It won't destroy me. David assumes that there will be trouble. He assumes there will be much hardship, much pain, much suffering. But in the midst of it, look at verse 6. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. If your enemies have surrounded you, you're already in trouble. Right? He's not, this is not a hypothetical general statement. His enemies are surrounding him. He's in big trouble. So he's not avoiding the trouble. He's in the midst of it. But he's saying, listen, because of who you are to me and because of what you're going to do for me through Christ, you're going to keep me safe even though I'm surrounded and in the midst of chaos and trouble and hardship. That's what this passage is saying. David gets it. Trouble has come. Trouble will come. That's my life, he says. But you will keep me secure in the midst of it, not remove me from it. One of the most famous psalms, the 23rd psalm, and spells this whole thing out. I mean, most of you have this memorized, right? Though I walk where? Through the valley of the shadow of death. Guess what? That's not the good place. In the midst of it, you will what? I shall fear no evil. In the midst of it. He, he prepares a table before me where? In the presence of my enemies. So the 27th Psalm, Romans chapter 8 The 23rd Psalm, they're all saying the same thing. Not that if you trust in God, there'll be no suffering. But in the midst of your suffering, he will keep you safe. He'll keep you secure. He'll give you courage. He'll give you hope as you think that the world is falling apart. In fact, if we were just to read and memorize Romans 8, 29, the next verse. Romans 28 says, For God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we say, okay, good, no bad things. But just read verse 29. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And you go, oh, that's what it means. What does it mean? It doesn't mean that no bad things are going to happen to you. It means that no bad things are going to happen to you that won't be changed or transformed into the image of Christ. In other words, only that which will change and conform you to the image of Christ will take place to you. And that's the definition of good for us in this context. Not bad, I lose my job, I get in a car accident, I can't walk. It's that which will happen to me will transform me. Good and bad. Oftentimes more the bad than the good that changes us from the inside out. Jesus Christ was the perfect man who submitted completely to God. And yet when we read through the gospel testimonies, what do you find in his life? Trouble. Much trouble. People didn't like him. People cast him out. They told him to leave. We know how the story ends. They arrested him, they beat him, and they killed him. That's bad. That's really bad. I mean, Jesus never married. He never had children. He never retired. He never played golf. He didn't do any of those things. That's bad. And yet here Christ, the perfectly submissive man, experienced security in his trouble as well. And then he says, don't be surprised. You know, a servant's not above his master. If I suffered, you're going to suffer too. And he gives us that fundamental teaching. So the promise that's given is that in the midst of it all, God will keep us secure. He'll make sure the hope stays in place. He's saying this, the important things, the really important things 
in the midst of the hard times, you'll never, ever lose. You may lose some of the secondary things that you think are the most important. But the most important things you'll never lose because I'm going to hold you and hold those things together both for time and for eternity. In other words, God's saying they're untouchable. The important things that really matter to to the believer that the enemies can't get to. They can't take away. And if you live this out... In, in verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When you get this, then it changes how you live. You'll be courageous. You'll be secure. You'll live each day at home and at work and in your neighborhood as a, a bold, faith-filled, joyful person. Because God is saying, in the midst of the chaos, I got you. I got you, and I'm not going to let you go. Can't lose it. That's the promise. It's not that no bad things will happen to you. If you read these verses and you go, that's what I think, then change your theology because that's not what it's saying. Okay? So if that's the promise, that in the midst of the chaos, God's going to keep me secure, the question is, how did David do it? How did David, who made catastrophic mistakes, write a psalm like this with any integrity? I mean, how was he so secure? How was he so courageous? How did he remain focused and stable in God his whole life? So the question, the second question I have here is, how can this promise actually be realized? Or better put, how is it exercised? How do we experience it in our own life rather than just singing it and saying, oh, that would be nice, but it doesn't work like that. Not in my life. You read verses 1 through 3 and there's incredible confidence and there's incredible courage in the stronghold of the Lord. And then the secret... The answer is given in verse 4. David was cultivating and had cultivated his heart in such a way that he, from the inside out, became a person that embraced, went into trouble and hardship with a completely different focus than how we often do. In verse 4, he tells us this. He says, one thing, one thing I ask of the Lord. This is the one thing that I seek now, around Christmas time, it's interesting. My children, they'll, they'll give me, you know, oh, Dad, this is what I want. It's never one thing. Sometimes it's a list of quite a few things, quite a few expensive things. I look at them thinking, are you out of your mind? You know, this is Christmas. You know, it's not, you know, a free day for me to go and buy anything I want to buy. David says, the one thing that I want, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? Why? It's a nice place. Of course it's a nice place. The house of the Lord. He says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. There's a secret here. There's a profound revelation here that we, as contemporary, pragmatic, postmodern people, we blow right by. First, I want to show you the truthfulness of this statement. The power of gazing upon the beauty and then how we're supposed to gaze. It's a radical statement. When David's saying, if you have this and you cultivate this beauty in your heart, I mean, you really have it, and you really nurture it, and you really grow it, then you too will be courageous and secure and bold in the midst of a world that seems to be coming unraveled before our very eyes. David says, you too can have this. David's life story. Both secular and Judeo-Christian historians argue that David was one of the greatest leaders in human history. One of the greatest leaders. In spite of all of his his catastrophic mistakes and the struggles that he had, both inside his family and in, in the nation of Israel and with other nations as well. And yet, in spite of this, 
he still was able to overcome and rejoice in such a way that leaves the secular historians somewhat confused, not those who believe in Christ as well. He did a couple things. One, the false expectation we just dismissed, he knew that, that trouble was real. He knew he'd go through it. So he didn't have this you know, really weird perspective on life that he was, if he trusted in God, it was all going to be easy. He blew that out early in his life. But the most important thing that he did on a daily basis, no doubt, but throughout his life is he cultivated a spirit of gazing. Now, what is that? It just sounds, I don't know about you, that sounds a bit weird to me. He gazed. He was a gazer. In fact, if you could say, tell me the five things about David, this man gazed thoroughly and consistently and deeply on a daily basis. What was he gazing at? He was gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, when I first hear that as a means by which I can be courageous and secure in my life, I think, hmm, can you give me something a little more practical, like a book? Give me a book that I can read that will give me the security of David. The answer is no, can't. If you're insecure, you'll say, I need people around me to tell me good things about me to make me more secure. I need someone around me to lift up my self-esteem. If I'm, if I'm afraid, I need someone around me to protect me. If I'm full of anxiety, I need therapists, I need med- I need something. Gazing just seems inadequate. I need something more pragmatic. And yet, the first thing that David would do, and the last thing that he would do in the midst of the crisis, was gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Why? Jonathan Edwards, in one of his earlier writings, talked about the essential difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, a believer and a non-believer. And this is what he said, paraphrased. (laughs) I couldn't possibly read to you what Jonathan Edwards said without taking five hours. He said, the difference between a real Christian who had experienced regeneration and the transformation of the human heart and the person who's still going through the motions, displaying all the external signs of religion without the transformation of the heart, is beauty. What? Beauty. Then he said, The religious person finds God useful, whereas the Christian finds God beautiful. He said, seeing God as beautiful is the essential difference between a Christian saved by grace and a religious person trying to earn salvation. In other words, verse 4 of Psalm 27 is the essential fundamental cry of the Christian What do I want most of all? What do I seek most of all? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, period. Because if you have that, you have it all. If you don't have that, you have nothing. But if you you can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord today, tomorrow, and forever, good times and in bad times, you'll be secure, you'll be courageous, you'll be filled with joy and hope because of the beauty that captivates your eye. If you were to take a Christian and a non-Christian, a believer and a non-believer, put them side by side, And you will see very similar lives and people. Two people can be very committed to God, very devoted to the church, very devoted to serving and studying and praying and offering, right? People who would submit to the law of God. But the motivation of those two people will be radically different. For the religious person, they will go to church and they will tithe and they will serve and they'll read their Bible and they will pray because they think that if they do, they will get whatever their ultimate beauty is from God. They use God to get whatever that beauty is to them. 
They're driven rather than the Christian who is attracted. The fundamental difference between the non-believer and the believer, both pursuing God, one is driven to get something other than God, one is attracted by God himself. Because to the Christian, God is the most beautiful. Before you came to a saving grace in Christ, you had an ultimate beauty in your life. You had something, someone, that you were most attracted to. That one thing that you wanted most. That one person you were driven by most to have, to see. To go to God, to get something other than God, Edward said, is just using God. And you'll be in this perpetual state of using God's power rather than wanting his presence. And when you don't get it from God, you ask and you don't get it, what do you do? You leave. Because you've got to go find it somewhere else. God's power over his presence. When we say, Lord, I want this from you rather than wanting you, you've already distinguished the character of your heart. One is religion and one is gospel. The Christian says, I want only one thing. The Christian will say the same thing as David. I want you, Lord. Your power is fantastic. Your majesty is amazing. Your presence is what I want. I desire. I want to gaze upon your beauty both now and forever. That's the one thing that I want. That's the one thing that I need. And if I have that, I have everything that I need and everything that I want. Period. When God came to Abraham, he says to Abraham, Abraham, I am your shield. A.K.A. I am your security. You go, I like that. My security. And then he says, Abraham, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Now, the religious person said, that's it? I like the security. You're my reward? How about the security and the reward being my physical well-being? How about the security and the reward being my financial success? How about a husband? How about a wife? How about kids that obey? How about life? For, what? There's more that I want than just your security. I want a reward, but it's not you. The religious person gets that. Because their beauty is set on something else. But the Christian hears that. The Christian hears God say to them, I am your security and I am your exceedingly great reward. And the Christian goes, yes, you are. You are my reward. You are my ultimate beauty. You're what I long for most. And I have you. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. The one thing. The most beautiful thing. Now, the compelling question, how does this bring security? How does beauty bring security? That's what David's saying. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all your life. Push it in deep and you'll be secure, you'll be courageous, you'll be filled with hope and joy. How? How does that work? Because it just sounds weird. It sounds counterintuitive and it certainly sounds counterculture. Have you been moved in your life? Of course you have. Even young people have. By a piece of music. I'll look at you, Jim. How about a piece of music that just, it overloads your senses of beauty. Or maybe a piece of art. Or maybe, yesterday I had an opportunity to, we drove up to Half Moon Bay. And on the way back we stopped. There, there's some really cool remote beaches on the way back from Half Moon Bay to the Santa Cruz area. Um, and there's one that it take, it's about a mile or so, maybe three-quarters of a mile to get out to. 
And so we parked the car, and the boys and I, we walked out. And the beach is just desolate. There's nobody there. And, and of course, it was, you know, this time of year, it's great because you have some low clouds, and the sun's coming down, and everything is just brilliant. And Kirk stood there, and he goes, oh. And I go, what? Like, he was disgusted. He goes, oh, we're so blessed. It's like it was hurting him to go, ah, I can't, I'm sensory overload, too much beauty, too good. And he didn't say, hey, Dad, this would be really useful for... It wasn't a means to an end. There was beauty there in and of itself. It was, by itself, beautiful. Fantastic. Not trying to use it. Every single one of us has a, for lack of a better phrase, a bottom line beauty. Something, someone, that you said, this is my ultimate beauty. This is it. And everybody, believer or non-believer, has it. I mean, otherwise, you're, you're stuck in this, you know, infinite regress to get to the ultimate beauty, right? But at some point, it has to stop. At some point, you say, this is my beauty. For the non-believer, it may be a spouse. It may be a husband or a wife. This is my ultimate beauty. It may be the career. It may be success. It may be money. It may be your kids. It may be something other. But everybody has a bottom line beauty that we're always striving to get to. But you got to end up somewhere. If Jesus Christ is not your ultimate beauty, then he is only a means to an end to that ultimate beauty, whatever that is to you. But if he is your ultimate beauty, if when you look upon the sunset, you look upon Christ like that sunset, you go, oh, he's it. I will gaze upon him, and I will rejoice in him, and I will enjoy him. Not as a means to any other end, but he is the end. He is the aim. He's everything. That's what David got. He got it. And he cultivated it. And he worked it deep. So that when his enemies surrounded him, when they tried to tear apart his flesh, when his own son tried to take his throne, he wasn't destroyed. Why? Because his ultimate beauty wasn't the throne. It wasn't his children. It wasn't his parents. It was God. And he had God. And he said, I can gaze upon him all day and all night, and you can't take him away. He was captivated. And you know what? For the believer, it just takes a glimpse. It does. You get a glimpse of the beauty of God, and you'll have the same response as Kirk. It'll be, ah, 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 ah. That's it. Him. I say, what about that beauty? That's good. This is better. What about this beauty? Good. Better. He will be the one you want to gaze on all day, every day, all night, every night. And it puts everything else into perspective. How we pray reveals the degree to which we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. How so? If when you pray, if your prayers are mostly supplication, which they are, Lord, give me, give me, give me, give me, right? Some confession in there, Lord, forgive me, and then give me, right? Some thanksgiving, Lord, forgive me, and then give me, and I'll be thankful for what you give me. So little of our prayer time is wrapped up in what we see here in this psalm and throughout the psalm and throughout the sacred scripture, and that's adoration and praise. Why? Because even our prayer reveals the degree to which we don't gaze upon the Lord. If I'm more satisfied in my prayer when I confess sin and I'm forgiven of sin, or I'm more satisfied in my prayer time when I ask for something and God gives it, than I am simply adoring God for who he is, being overwhelmed with his righteousness and his majesty and his love and his mercy. 
If when you are praying prayers of adoration and praise and they seem mechanical, God, you're so good. God, you're so great. Can we move on now? Can I get to the supplication? Because this is what I really want. You've already revealed what you really want. The Christian who gazes upon the beauty of the Lord has trouble getting off adoration. (laughs) You're saying, you see what I see? This is good. We'll get to confession. That's important. But do you see what I see? You ever prayed with someone like that? And you're going, yeah, yeah, we know he's good. We know he's great. Let's get to the other parts. Your prayer reveals, I mean, how much you gaze upon the beauty. And if your prayer life is all supplication and confession and thanksgiving and no adoration, then I, I would argue that you probably don't have the security David has in the midst of chaos. That when your enemies surround you, you run into God and go, okay, God, supplication number one, get him out of my face. Get him away from me, right? When sickness comes, you say, God, heal me. David didn't do that. He said, one thing I seek as my enemies surround me. One thing I want is they want to tear apart my flesh. One thing. That's just a gaze upon you. That's not a supplication. An adoration. Your beauty. To see your beauty. And this is what David was doing. He's saying, I can be safe, I can be secure, because as I gaze upon the one thing I love most, as I gaze upon the beauty of God, and I find him more and more beautiful with each passing day, that he becomes my reward, David goes, and I'm never going to lose him. No one can take him away from me. He belongs to me, I belong to him. My beauty will always be there. And therefore I am safe, and therefore I'm secure. How do you do this? I mean, it's easy to say. I can say to you, make God the ultimate beauty of your life. Gaze upon him and you go, okay. And then times of trouble come and we don't do it. So how did David do it? I mean, what was the means by which we actually gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? The word gaze, it's in a Hebrew family of words that really means to meditate. And when you're gazing, you're meditating, right? I mean, when you are, you ever, you ever been around someone? I do this to my kids all the time. They're gazing. I see them gazing, and I go, what are you thinking about? And the, the older ones don't like it. Josh, he still plays the game with me, and he goes, ah, oh, this is what, And he tells me. And he's, I can see him. He's got this, he's meditating on something. And usually something really cool, like, you know, being a superhero and flying through the air or jumping off his bike and doing something great, right? He's gazing, and he's meditating. And he's, he's, he's in the car next to me, but he's a million miles away. Gazing, meditating, chewing. The metaphor is great. You want the the actual metaphor in the Hebrew? The word comes from to chew like a cow. Cow, chewing, you know, meditating. Same base in the Hebrew. You go, what What is that about? Think about how cows eat. How do they eat? They chew and they chew and they chew and they swallow. And the cow says, Mmm, that was pretty good. And they bring it back up and they chew some more. They do. What are you going, uh, that's how God made them. That's all right. I'm not recommending you do it, but that's how they did it, right? And they chew and, they, and then they can bring it back up again. And what they're doing is they're, they're getting all the sweetness out. They're chewing to get the sweetness, not just to get the information. And that's what the meditation is here. This is what David is doing. That the chewing on the word of God is not just to glean information to make us smarter. 
It's to taste the sweetness and to see the beauty of the Lord. And so when we talk about meditating, it's, it's more than prayer and it's more than Bible study. It's somewhere in between. It's, it's both informative and formative in nature. What do I mean by that? It's informative in that when we read the word, we want to know what it actually says. And we need to know what it actually says. You want to chew on the right thing. And that means we read God's word, we study God's word, we ask hard questions. What does that mean? What is the author really saying? What is the context in which this was written? What about the language? What about the Zitzenleben and all that good stuff that I know what it actually says? Informative reading. We must do that. And when you do that, What you're doing is you're saying, I want to see God as he's revealed himself in light of scripture, that I might see God clearly. If you look at this piano and you say, I I see a black piano, you really don't, right? I mean, what you're seeing is light being reflected off the piano that's coming to your eyes and giving you information that that has the shape of a piano, right? When we read God's word informatively, we want to see the light of God's truth as he's revealed himself truthfully. So that when we chew, we know that we're chewing on who he really is rather than who we think he is. Psalm 1, the first psalm, verse 1 and 2. It says, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He chews like a cow day and night. Getting all the sweetness out of the word. Over and over and over. And what we're doing is we're taking the word of God and we're pressing it into who we are. So that it's not just something we read and understand and go, okay, I can talk about this intelligently. A Bible study when Pastor Keith asks a question. We know it. And it shapes us. That the information comes in accurately. But the most important part of meditating is not just the informative aspects. It's the formative part. Informative, I take it incorrectly. Formative, it shapes me. How so? In informative Bible study, we're asking questions, right? What does this mean? What is God trying to say? How how do I understand this in light of the context and the author? We must do this first. But once you have the informative reading down, then you must make it formative. And that's when it changes. That's when you begin to actually, it begins to shape you. And it begins to ask you questions. What does this mean to you, believer? What does this tell you, believer, about me? How does this shape your thoughts? Formative, to give you form and shape into what? Into the image of Christ. And when we do that, when the word becomes shaping and defining for us, it's fantastic because what happens is you'll break forth in prayer. And you'll begin to express to God who God is now to you as revealed in sacred scripture. When you begin talking back to God about what he said to you. You know, one of the most fundamental ways to pray is to read and meditate and chew on scripture to hear God speak to you truthfully and then to respond to him. Joshua's in an art class right now. And he is, he's painting and he's doing watercolors and some really cool stuff. The teacher's amazing. And so he'll say, Dad, you got to see what I did. And he'll bring it to me. What do I do? What do I do with him? I go, oh, man, this is cool. And I say to him in his presence, I love how you did this. And he goes, yeah, that's good, isn't it? And I love how you, how you made this crab look this way on the sand. Yeah. And I love how you, you took the shadow and it looked like this. Yeah. And what am I doing? I'm praising him 
in his presence. This is formative reading of prayer. How we approach scripture. When God speaks to you through his word and you say back to him, you are fantastic. You are beautiful. You're in front of the artist, expressing to the artist what is true about him. This is gazing. This is good gazing, my beloved. This is the best gazing we do, especially in the midst of trial and chaos. When you're really hurting, instead of trying to find the pragmatic solution to the problem, to, re- to remove the problem, David say, gaze upon the Lord. Meditate on the Lord. Chew upon his beauty and his majesty and his greatness. Have it go in. Have it sink in. Become deep. Because if you do, you know what's going to happen? He tells us in the 39th Psalm, David says this, you gaze. You gaze like this. He says, as I meditated, as I, chew, as I chewed on the word of God, the fire burned, my heart grew hot, Within me. I love that. Do you know what he's doing? As he takes in the word and understands who God is, and as the word begins to shape him and transform him, and as he expresses back to God who God is and all of his glory and all of his love and all of his majesty, David is being radically changed on the inside. He, his heart is warming up to the beauty that he sees. He's doing both informative and formative reading and studying and meditating on the word of God. And what's happening is his, as he gazes upon the beauty, he, say, he sees God and he says, you are majestic. You are sovereign above all that is seen and unseen. You are the God who created all this seen and unseen. And he sees him and he rejoices in that. He sees God's wisdom and he rejoices in God being a creator that, that intertwined everything together correctly. He sees God's beauty in his grace. And in that grace, there's love and there's mercy and there's salvation through Christ. And as he does all this and as he reflects upon this and as he communicates it back to God, his heart burns inside in a beautiful way, in a right way. When, when I, we were kids, and maybe you did this, you did show and tell. Remember, you'd take something to class, and you'd show it, and you'd tell about it. This is turn and tell. You're hearing from God, and you're turning back to God, and you're telling him his beauty, his majesty. You're reflecting upon it. And the more you do that, the more you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, his majesty, his grace, his, his creation. The more you do that, the more you see how real it is and the more it shapes you. And this is not some strange, hypnotic, cognitive trick. Okay, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the power of hyper-suggestion. I'm talking about you seeing God as he really is and his real beauty shaping you into who you're really supposed to be. Real transformation. Real courage in the midst of chaos. Real security as you're surrounded by your enemies. We do this with people we love. I mean, don't we? Don't we? Don't we tell people how beautiful we find them? Why do you do that? You say, do you, you, do you know that you are beautiful? I just wanted to make sure. I didn't want you to forget. Why do you do that? I, I tell Lori how beautiful she is. I tell her how much I love her. I tell why? 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 I'm sharing with her what is real. My love, her beauty to me in my eyes. And as I do that, 
It becomes more real to me. Her beauty becomes more real to me. Her love becomes more real to me. And my heart gets all warm inside, right? Some people call it butterflies. Other people call it passion. It's gazing. Not grazing, it's gazing. All right, keep those separate. And David's doing this and he's pushing it in deeper and deeper. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He said, that's what I want to do. That's all I want to do. And he even gives us an example of how he does this in verse 10. Look at verse 10. He says, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. What's he doing? Why is he talking about his mom and dad forsaking him? What's he doing here? Go back to verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? When he's afraid, he gazes upon the Lord. And what he's saying is this. If my mother, God forbid, or if my father, God forbid, ever forsaked me, I'm getting ready for it now by gazing upon the beauty of the Lord who will never forsake me. And David is showing us that he's actually preparing himself. And I know that sounds weird. You know, in light of our culture, it sounds very strange. But David's saying, listen, if my parents forsake me, I'm not going to get all weirded out and go, I'm a victim, my parents don't love me anymore, my life's a mess. So I'm not going to do that. He says, right now, I'm going to remind myself and prepare myself for who I am to God and who God is to me. That God will receive me. That God has already received me in Christ. That God already loves me and finds me beautiful as I love him and find him beautiful. And that's there and that's set. So if my parents forsake me, if they do not receive me, I don't want it to happen. But if it does, it won't destroy me. Why? Because his ultimate beauty is in God and God will never leave or forsake him. Archbishop William Temple once said, your real religion is what you do with your solitude. I hate that. You know why? I'll paraphrase it for you. He's saying, if you want to know who or what your real God is, your real beauty is, he said, see where your mind goes when you don't have anything else to think about. Gulp. When you're not overwhelmed with work, overwhelmed with school, overwhelmed with home, when, when there's actually a quietness to your soul, where does your mind go? He says, it'll go to your ultimate beauty. And that's your God. Does it go to Christ? Does it go to the throne? Do you seek God's face? Do you gaze upon his beauty? Because David's saying, that's where I go. That's where I want to dwell. That's where I want to be. Does it go to the wanting of the husband that you do not have? Does it go to the wanting the wife that... You have a wife, but she's not the wife that you wanted. Does it go to the job that you, you hate the job now, you want that other job, because if you just had that job, I mean, what do you find yourself meditating on? Because that reveals a beauty to you, maybe an ultimate beauty. And David's saying, if it's not Christ, if it's not God, then no wonder you're afraid. I mean, no wonder you're so scared. Our culture is moved by beauties other than God himself. And that's why we run around in a constant frenzy. Why? Because if God is not your ultimate beauty, then you're afraid for two reasons. One, that you may never get your ultimate beauty. Whatever it is, marriage, children, finances, career, success, you may never get it. So you're afraid, you're insecure, you're anxious. Makes sense, right? And then when you do get it, you're still afraid, insecure, and anxious. Why? Because you don't want to lose it. Constant fear, constant anxiety. And David says, unless Christ 
is your ultimate beauty, that will be your state. You won't be secure. You'll be insecure. You won't be courageous. You'll be fearful. You won't be bold and filled with joy and humility. You'll be constantly striving to get that one thing or keep that one thing that is the most beautiful to you that's not God himself. David said, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. And he's contemplating that. He's saying, one day I'm going to walk in and God's going to say, I'm glad you're here. Have a seat. David said, I'm going to think about that. I'm going to think about the fact that God has already received me and the Messiah who will come. He's saying, I'm going to contemplate the fact that the creator of the universe has called me and knows me by name. I'm going to think about that. I'm going to think about how much God really loves me. Really loves me. Not just in name, but really loves me. And how he thinks that I'm already beautiful in spite of all the mess that I make. He says, I'm going to remind myself and gaze upon this beauty. Now, if you think for a moment that David does not know the troubles that you know, he did. In fact, the, the, the entire psalm can be broken up into two general sections, verses 1 through 6. You hear it, David. I mean, David, he's confident, right? He starts off, whom shall I fear? No one. I'm confident in the Lord. He's my stronghold. And then you hit verse 7, and there's this weird transition because he's scrambling. Verse 7. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. My heart says to you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not reject me or forsake me. Oh God, my Savior, where are you? Do you see what happened? He's having a good day in verses 1 through 6. Not so good a day in verses 7 through 14. He sees God clearly in verses 1 through 6. He's not seeing God so clearly in verses 7 through 14. And he's saying, it doesn't matter. As I gaze, as I seek to gaze, I know fundamentally that God is my ultimate beauty. And therefore, in the good times and the bad times, on a good day and a bad day, I will remain secure because he will never leave me and he will never forsake me. And so as you scramble, because we're much like David, I'm much like David. I mean, I have days that are, I wake up and it's like, this day will not get any better. And it's one of those days where you go through, and then I have, the, the next day I wake up and it's, it's terrible. And everything just is a mess and nothing's working, nothing's right. What do I do? Do I go, oh, woe is me, the Lord's left me, the Spirit's gone. What should I do? What's David saying to do? He says, stop and gaze. He said, no, that, that's not going to work. My computer's crashing. I need IT support. He says, stop and gaze. He goes, no, no, I'm in an argument with my wife. I need resolution and restoration. He's saying, stop and gaze. And we hear that, and I know, for me, I go, come on, it can't be, it can't be that easy. It is that easy and it's that profound. It's that life-changing to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, good days and bad days, deep, push it in. So I'll close very quickly. How do you know? I mean, this is a very dangerous thing, right? I'm telling you that when your enemies enemies surround you, they want to tear apart your flesh (laughs) to gaze upon the Lord. You're saying, that's counsel. How do I know that's good counsel? How do I know that if I do that, that I won't be destroyed, that I won't come unraveled? How? Here's how. Listen. God does not offer you. The promise is not no suffering. That's a lie. Okay? God promises you one thing. 
There are many blessings that come from that one thing. But he promises you one thing, believer in Christ. Do you know what it is? He doesn't promise that you'll always have good friends that never forsake you. He doesn't promise you that. He doesn't promise that you'll be married or have a happy marriage. He doesn't promise you that your kids will be well-behaved and become successful. (laughs) Those are all promises we want. But he doesn't promise us those things. He doesn't promise you that you'll never lose your job. Or go through economic hard times. Or you won't have to go to war. Or that your country won't be invaded. He doesn't promise any of those things. Many of those things, by the way, you will lose. He says, I promise you one thing. Through my son, I promise you myself. I promise you me. I promise you a relationship with me that you'll have for now and forever. And it will never be taken away. You may lose your friends. You may lose your family. You may lose your spouse. You may lose your job. But you'll never, ever, ever lose me. And if that's true, which it is, then you have the security and you have the courage and you have the hope that you need regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what's going through life. God is not a God who will say to you, how many times have you done that sin? Hmm? One too many, you're out. Right? He doesn't do that. We don't see that in Scripture. He doesn't say, okay, I warned you. I told you. Too late. I'm gone. You're out. I'm gone. You're not. He doesn't, we don't ever see that. We see the exact opposite. Again and again and again. He's calling us back. He's inviting us back. He's redeeming us through our sin. He said, it's still not enough for me to know I can be confident. The confidence we have is this. And you know this because you've heard it a million times from me. And I tell you it again and again because it's the most fundamental thing we must understand. That you have, can have this courage by gazing upon the beauty of God. Because Jesus Christ, the most courageous man to ever live, stopped gazing. He kept gazing, but God turned away from him. He could gaze no longer. And so Jesus Christ said, I will experience the greatest loss. That is my father. So that you can have the greatest gain. And that is my father. I'll give up the greatest beauty, the ultimate beauty. I'll give him up. So that you can have him. Now. Right now. In your life now. And then have him forever and gaze upon him forever. And dwell in the house of the Lord forever Jesus Christ I mean his life is so tragic he lost his friends he lost his family he lost his country he lost his physical body he lost all those things and those are all catastrophic those are all the really really bad things we think Romans 8.28 prevents us from right but it wasn't the thing that was most grievous to him and it's amazing to me how many believers I talk to who still don't see this fundamental truth what he lost that was most important to him was the relationship he had with his father. It was his ultimate beauty. Had you asked Christ in the garden that night when he was praying, what are you most afraid of? He wouldn't say the cross. He wouldn't say the nails. He wouldn't say the scourging. He wouldn't say the crown of thorns. He wouldn't say being spit on. He would say, losing my father. Losing the ultimate beauty. That I cannot fathom. But he did. You know, verses 7 through 9, Jesus was praying this prayer in the garden. Look at verse 7 through 9. Jesus could have said these very words. In fact, we know in part he did. 
Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Did he not pray that prayer? And yet God did turn away. God the Father did forsake the Son. God the Father did not answer the prayer. God the Father said to the Son, I know that I am your ultimate beauty and you are mine, but for these people, that we might have them forever, I must forsake you. Jesus Christ is the only person in human history who's ever cried out to God for mercy and God said no. He's the only person that cried out, I want to see your face, I want to see your beauty, I want to dwell in your house forever, and God the Father said no. The only person who's ever asked that or ever will ask that and hear that response, no. And the reason he heard no is so that you can say, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, I want to gaze upon your beauty. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to be in your presence and hear him say, yes, yes, a thousand times yes. Jesus Christ deserved the beauty of God. He deserved that dwelling forever. But he gave it up so that we, in the psalm, we deserved his anger. We deserve to be forsaken. We deserve to be cast out of the land of the living. That's us. So that we would be brought in. So that we, people completely undeserving, would receive what he rightly deserved. And that was the beauty of the Lord. The beauty of the Lord. So that when we seek him, so that in the midst of the chaos, when the army besieges us, our hearts will not be afraid. Though war break out against us, even then we will be confident because we have Christ. We have Christ. We are getting Christ. We will have, ultimately we will have Christ And he said he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. And that means the ultimate beauty through a saving grace in Jesus Christ can be yours now and forever. And if you have him, if you see him, if you gaze upon him, your life will be changed too. No matter how hard it gets, you'll be able to say like David, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. I want you to leave here. I want you to do one thing. I want you to chew like a cow. I do. I want you, over the next week or several weeks, begin having God's word speak to you and chew on it. Don't just read it quickly and go, you know what, I got 20 minutes of devotion this morning. I'm going to devote myself to a quick reading. Stop. Chew. Chew it again. Taste the sweetness. Chew it in the very presence of God and say, do you see yourself? Do you see what you're saying? Are you really this good? Are you really this powerful? Are you really this type of savior? Are you really this Messiah to me? Are you really this gracious to a sinner like me? And he's going to go, yes, yes, I am. Chew on that. Taste the sweetness. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord like David. We're entering A very chaotic time of year where people kind of lose their minds for a little while. They get sane again first week of January. Not so much. Don't get overwhelmed with all the noise. If at any time of year we should be gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, it should be this time, right? 
when we begin to recognize his birth, the incarnation of the living God, we should gaze upon his beauty. This is a means of grace. It is a discipline of the faith. If you're tired of being insecure, if you're tired of being anxious ridden, if you're tired of chasing after beauties you can never catch, stop and gaze upon the Lord. And don't stop that. Because we're going to spend all eternity doing it. I have this image of all eternity having that expression of Kirk on the beach. God going, ah, all eternity. Never growing tired of the beauty of God. Never. I had a chance. I'm going to close. I had a chance. I took a flight two weeks ago. And I was out. I was working on the airplane. I wanted to go test it out, working with some oil issues. And... uh, it was getting dark, and I wanted to get it up in the air before it was dark. Better to fly with this light out, right? And uh, the cloud cover was really interesting. The plane's out at Watsonville, and the cloud cover went out over the horizon. But then, you know, as the eye can see, there was about 10 feet between the edge of the clouds and the ocean. And so when I, when I took off, the, the sun was just still above the clouds. It hadn't broken down yet. And I took off, and you take out right over the water. And right at the end, so the runway had straight out of the water, there was this incredible red, purple, orange streak in the water. And then from the clouds, it was emanating this purplish red. And it was, it was so dangerous for me. I was so, ca- I, 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 don't, kept, I did circles, and I just kept like this, and I'd look. And I didn't want to land, because I didn't want to stop looking at this beauty. That's nothing compared to the beauty of Christ. That's just a a really bad taste of how magnificent it's going to be when the beauty comes and we see him as he really is. Saints, meditate on that. And don't stop. If you need help, ask me. I'll help you. We can meditate. You want to pray with someone? Pray with Jim. Jim prays better than anybody I know in adoring God. He does. Pray with him. Find someone to pray with and adore the beauty of our heart. Let's pray right now to that end. Father, we recognize how hard this is. Especially when the enemies have surrounded us. We always will go to whatever the easy answer is. The quick answer. It'll be a doctor. It'll be a medication. It'll be a book. It'll be a seminar. And you tell us to stop and gaze upon you first. To gaze upon your beauty, to see your majesty, to see your holiness, to see the love and mercy and grace you poured out through your son on the cross. To see these things. To warm our hearts. To make them hot. So that we can then communicate it back to you. How beautiful you truly are. To say to you, you are God. You're our God. A beauty that we want to rejoice in and see forever and ever as we dwell in your house. Give us this insight. Give us this wisdom. More importantly, Lord, give us the desire to begin gazing today, tonight, tomorrow morning. To open your word and to chew on it long in your presence. To get the sweetness out. Knowing full well that this will bring you glory and change us as well. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would become gazers, gazers of your beauty. I pray for that for this church and for your church throughout the world, that we would understand the secret that David understood 
in verse 4. The one thing that he wanted should be the one thing that we want. And that is to gaze upon your beauty and to dwell with you forever. Give us that wisdom, I pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.